Hey guys, I'm Mariam Sembei. Welcome to my podcast, Your Mind Matters Too. I want to premise today's episode by saying, firstly, a lot of what I'm about to talk about has been thoroughly discussed and researched about by Dr. Brene Brown in her book, The Gifts of Imperfections. So if you've never heard of it, please look it up. It's highly recommended and it has insight about everything that I'm going to be talking about today. And look up her TED talk on shame and vulnerability. These things have infinite, you know, her she her knowledge is infinite and her wisdom is essential for our survival as human beings. The second thing I want to premise this episode with is that um, the most valuable contribution I can make is my own experience about dealing with shame and accepting our imperfections as human beings. So what I'm about to say might not directly um, be your experience, but because we all battle shame in what Dr. Brene Brown calls shame gremlins, we all have this. I feel a deep sense of belonging, knowing that someone out there will resonate deeply with my experiences. So even though you might not have gone through exactly the same things I did, but I have faith that um, you would be able to understand. So it is from this place of belonging and faith and understanding that I hope um, you understand me and I hope that you will be able to hear me when I say uh, battling mental illness is difficult and we can only get better by owning our story and embracing our imperfections. I'll say that again. Battling mental illness is difficult and we can only get better by owning our story and embracing our imperfections. So don't let the shame win and don't spend your life running and hiding instead of living beautifully whole. So if you like this episode, then please listen, subscribe and share the link with your friends and family to raise awareness on the subject. Because today I'm talking about shame in mental health victims and the gifts of imperfections. I'll be right back. Because, you know, when you talk about shame, there's this hidden, uncomfortable compartment in our hearts and in, in the bottom of our tummy telling us to resist talking about shame. So I figured that maybe a good place to start would be by defining shame so that we can all be at a place of understanding of what it means and uh, what it means to wrestle with it. 
Now, the dictionary definition of shame is a feeling of humiliation or distress caused by the consciousness of wrong or foolish behavior. You know, feeling humiliated or distressed by the consciousness of wrong or foolish behavior. It's also been defined as a regrettable or unfortunate feeling. And um, I find that these two words, regrettable and unfortunate, are the cornerstone of humiliation. You know, when you're feeling completely foolish or humiliated by something that happened or something that you did or something that you feel, then um, one of the things that will come back, one of the most recurring feelings that will come back is regret and um uh, in the consciousness and deep humiliation so i think these definitions um stand the test of time but uh, my favorite definition which better fits today's topic is the definition put forth by dr Brene brown and she describes shame as the intensely painful feeling or experience believing that we are flawed and therefore unworthy of love and belonging I'll repeat that. It's an intensely painful feeling or experience believing that we are flawed and therefore unworthy of love and belonging. So what does, not, what does this mean? Whenever you feel you are not worthy of any love or any belonging because there's this painful and intense feeling that tells you you're unworthy of love and belonging, you're feeling shame. And this is a feeling that does not discriminate and it happens to everyone. Everyone feels shame. So it's a feeling that's universal. And according to Dr. Brene Brown, whose research indicate that um, we all feel shame, we're also very afraid to talk about shame. And the less we talk about shame, the more control it has over our lives. So the less we talk about shame, the more we feel shame, essentially. It is shame that convinces us that we are unworthy unless someone else thinks we're worthy. It is shame that tells us if we open up about our story, if we dare to live in any way authentically, then we will be judged. And when we are judged, we are unworthy. And um, it is this place of shame, this place of fear of worthiness that we tend to seek perfection because we believe that if everything is exactly as it should be, we believe that if we behave exactly the way we're supposed to do, to be, um, if we do exactly what we're supposed to be doing, if we make no mistakes, if we are perfect, then we will be worthy of admiration, we'll be worthy of acceptance, of love, and we will be worthy of belonging. And um, so I have a theory. I think that the most put together people are often the one battling the worst shame. And the most put together people are likely the least people to talk about shame. And um, I recently wrote about this on my Instagram um, a couple a couple weeks ago. And I told a story about how as a child, I was seemingly okay with not making mistakes and not being so very put together. And how today as an adult, I struggle with being wrong or asking for help. And, um, and and essentially, this is what I wrote, you know, in my Instagram. This is what I wrote. I wrote, the most put together people are the ones that need the most help. Because we have created a persona of independence and strength to avoid appearing weak and to avoid asking for help. And then I went on to caption the post with these words. I said, 
I've always been confident in my ability to assertively be put together. I knew what right things to say and knew how to behave. For the most part, I knew how not to need help until I didn't. Now everything feels like a test I'm failing. And I realized that um, at the corner peak of my feelings, when I was making this post, a lot of the recurring theme in my life was mistakes. I was screwing up a lot of things in my life and a lot of things were going wrong. And because of this, because of feeling this sense of imperfection, I felt worthless. And I was so used doing the right thing to having someone pat me on the back because I did the right thing and knowing what the right thing felt like and then doing completely the wrong thing and messing up and not being able to get out of that um, continuous circle of messing up and and, and, and uh, doing wrong things. I felt like I was screwing up and it felt awfully uncomfortable. Screwing up, making mistakes, these things that are so human, it felt wrong. It felt uncomfortable to feel these things. And I realize now that what I was feeling um, when I was making those mistakes was shame. I was feeling shame uh, for screwing up and for not having things figured out and for not being so put together. And I wasn't going to talk about it. I wasn't going to talk about the shame because, you know, like I said, the most put together people are the ones who feel the most shame. And when you're uncomfortable to talk about shame, you feel it even more. And um, so I was human. I was, I was being a human being. I was making mistakes. I was being flawed instead of taking a step back and being like, hey, this is okay. We all make mistakes. I cursed myself and I was very hard on myself. And I did not at the time, but because of this feeling of shame, my depression got worse. So over the past month, I relapsed terribly, terribly relapsed, did the whole shebang, had um, terrible uh, re- uh, relationship with food, just like when I started my journey with depression, I was battling insomnia. I was performing. I was hiding. I was um, I was ha- being a highly functioning depressed person. And I kept saying, I'm fine, I'm fine. Knowing fully well, I was not fine. So um, the funny thing about shame is that it directly correlates to feelings of aggression, addiction, eating disorders, depression, and anxiety. The more we feel unworthy for making mistakes and for not being perfect, the louder the shame gets and causes us to seek validation in things and people that hurt us. So every time you are depressed or every time you're acting out um, or, ev- or when you're battling addiction or when you're battling anxiety or eating disorders, it's because at the root of it all, you're feeling unworthy for making mistakes, for being imperfect. And when you're doing that, when you're in that headspace where you're feeling unworthy for being human, the louder the shame will get and the louder you will seek the things that um, are unworthy. For example, drugs, alcohol, or um, people that make you feel terrible. So I, I did a deep dive of this, right? I needed to understand um, why I was feeling shame and, and how I could get better. And so I came across this book um, and I read it and it helped me process things. Um, 
this is the book called it's called for the love of men a new vision for mindful masculinity it's by the author Liz Plank who also is now um, a co-host one of my favorite podcasts man enough um, undefining masculinity um, so Liz Plank writes this in her book she writes we live in a culture that teaches boys stoicism over authenticity dominance over empathy and that if they don't follow the script someone will take notice and take the man card away i'm gonna repeat that um we live in a culture that teaches boys stoicism over authenticity dominance over empathy and that if they don't follow the script someone will take notice and take away the man card so shame for men is rooted in the idea that if you do not conform to the masculine trope laid out for you by the society, you're unmanly, you know. And as a result, men are less likely to communicate with their doctors or take advice or ask for help. And this is proven by research. And therapist um, Terry Real actually put it this way. He says, um, she says, Millions of men are living with COVID depression. Many men would rather place themselves at risk than acknowledge distress, either physical or emotional. And because of this idea of masculinity that is being conditioned in boys from an early age, young men everywhere in the world are the demographic least likely to seek mental health help. And ironically, they're also the group who would benefit the most from mental health intervention. And this is evidenced by the fact that if you read research, um, countless of studies have proven today that men are more likely to die by suicide than women. And um, uh, funny thing is, and it's not really funny, it's actually pretty sad, uh, this study rates women higher on suicide attempts, but the men rate higher on successfully taking their own lives. So first, men are told, do not feel um, discomfort, do not um, appear weak, do not feel weak, do not show emotion. And because they're taught that way, then they feel they cannot ask for help. And when they're in distress, whether it's physical or mental or emotional, they suffer in silence. And because of this, they're less likely to ask for help. And so they end up succumbing to the illness, like killing, um, kill, uh, death by suicide or um, overdose addiction or, or, you know, live a life of violence. So when you look at it, at the root of it all, right, whether you're battling addiction or debt or heartbreak or an identity crisis or isolation or fear of belonging or fatal disease, whatever it is you're battling, the ideals of masculinity makes men less inclined to get help because shame in men is rooted in the belief that asking for help is weak and therefore, quote-unquote, unmanly. <laughs> here's, um, here's another thing that I learned when I was trying to understand um, shame. While society has told men not to feel, it has given women permission to feel everything, good and bad. If you feel happy, great, dance it off, it's beautiful. If you feel sad, call a girlfriend, hug it out, cry, it's endearing. If you're emotional, here, take a hanky, go be emotional, it's in your nature. But like men, this perceived permission comes at a price. 
Women are expected to be emotional because they're also expected to be everything else. Women are expected to be strong and reliable and kind and affectionate and motherly. At the same time, women are expected to be soft and beautiful and sexy and appealing and arousing. Women are expected to attract men and be grateful. Women are expected to set the example and never make mistakes. Recently, um, a male friend said this to me. He said, if a man cheats on his wife and people find out, he would, um, he could feel shame, right? And people would be like, yeah, what he did was terrible. But there's this expectations, this attitude um, of shrugging it off and be like, hey, it's terrible, sure, but he's a man and men will be men, right? But if a woman cheats, it's abominable. It is catastrophic. This is because women are supposed to know better. And women are supposed to behave better. So we set the standards very low for men. And we say men will be men. But we set the standards ridiculously high for women. And say women should know better. It's why in our society, we say a mother is the one that teaches her child to be good. If a child is bad, we look at the way their mother raised them. So a woman is supposed to learn how to be good and attractive and kind and loving and all these other things. And perfect. You know, they have to do that perfectly in every way. And then they're not they're not supposed to show any, any sort of weakness, you know, at the same time. So, and I find this ridiculous in, in, in little things. Like, like, for example, how we police women's bodies and praise virginity in girls but expect less in boys. A father and a mother will most likely encourage and forbid their daughters from engaging in sexual activity, yet the same parent would praise, encourage, or ignore their son's sexual activity. So the standards vary because we have an ideal of what a woman should behave like and what a man should be. And, you know, going deeper into this, right, on stuff like body image issues, um, these are things that really drive home shame, feelings of shame for women. In in society, for instance, um, it's been told to us, you know, it's been detected to us what beauty looks like. And um, we've believed it in our culture as the ideal, you know. Um, for example, for us, in our culture, women who are curvy, who have big boobs and big asses and sexy legs and light skin and velvety voice, women who are submissive on top of it all, these are women who in our culture have the ideal qualities of beauty. So skinny, white, curvy, black, everyone has an opinion of what a beautiful woman needs to look like. So if any woman at all doesn't fall in any of these categories, that we've set, the standards that we've set, or we're taught to believe are the true measure of beauty, then the woman feels shame. And she's conditioned to feel shame and unworthy of love and belonging. So then I realized, uh, you can't win, right? Whether you're a man or woman, um, society, the way it treats you, you cannot win. And at the root of it all is shame. And it may vary, um, for in both degrees for both men and women but um, it's there for both of us you know it's there and 
it stems from the struggle of wanting to be comfortable and from wanting to fit in in a society that demands you to be perfect. So I want to quote Dr. Brene Brown by saying this, shame forces us to put so much value on what other people think that we lose ourselves in the process of trying to meet everyone else's expectations. You know, shame forces us to put so much value on what other people think that we lose ourselves in the process of trying to meet everyone else's expectations. We've established, and I'm sure you can agree with me, that shame is universal. It does not discriminate, and it comes in different shapes and in different forms for us all. Um, Over the years, as I have stumbled and learned about mental health, I learned that much like shame, um, mental health is universal and does not discriminate. It also comes in varying degrees for everyone. So I wanted to know why no one around me is talking about mental health. I had to learn about mental health after I became a mental health victim. And um, when I was at the brink of suicide and was fortunate enough to find the courage to ask for help, that's when I first learned of the words depression and mental health. So I was very bothered by the fact that no one around me was talking about it. And since then, I have realized that people don't talk about mental health because it's uncomfortable. The same way people do not want to talk about shame because it's uncomfortable. I have also learned since I started this journey of mental health advocacy that people tend to react one of two ways when I start talking about mental health issue. Um, mental health issues. Number one, either people say to me, oh, you're so brave for talking about your mental health journey, or people want me to help them get help for their mental health crisis. <laughs> Funny thing is... Um, Every time I shared my story, and this this happens every bloody time, every time I share my story, the very last thing I would feel is brave. Despite the fact that people here, they go, oh, you're so brave for talking about this. That's the last thing I feel when I'm talking about um, my journey. For example, about two, three years ago, I get a call to speak at an event about my journey of depression. And um, it was like to give a testimonial about my journey of depression. I thought, hey, this will be great exposure and it will be a great chance to get people to talk about mental health. The event was um, held to commemorate Mental Health Day um, that year. But um, when I got the question, when I got the call about the event and to take part in the event, one of the first questions that I asked was, what language am I expected to speak in? <laughs> if you know me well enough, then you know how comfortable I am speaking English over Swahili. And I can mix up the language if I want to, but the truth is, I almost always never want to. I was told um, Swahili was preferred for this event, but that I could speak in, in English if I wanted to. Now, in my head... After I heard that, all um, I heard was I needed to speak Swahili. So even before the event was set to start, like even before the day of the event started, remember this is still in the call. I'm still talking to this person over the phone. I'm already bracing myself for a classic failure. So going forward, for 
weeks to follow. I had this massive anxiety about an event that hadn't even yet occurred because I was told I would have to speak Swahili. Um, well, I was told Swahili was preferred, but the way I thought of it was I needed to speak Swahili um, for it to be um, for it to be good. And then the next thing that I was told that completely set me off was that they needed someone to talk about how they suffered from depression and got cured. Now I need you to understand. Um, since I've started uh, this journey, I have been a lot of things, but cured has never been one of them. And instead of saying this, um, when I was told that that's what they needed, instead of saying that, I said, it's fine, I can do it. Um, I can be cured for this event if it means getting people to get um, to want to get help and to talk about mental health. So then the, the, um, the day of the event arrives and I get there and there are maybe 80 to like 100 plus people at this place. And I already feel horrible because number one, Everyone was speaking Swahili when they got to the podium. And my social anxiety went through the roof. Um, it was already bad, but then it got worse when I got there and I saw everyone was speaking Swahili. So the pressure was real, you know. I knew in my heart that I was going to screw this up. I didn't know how or to what degree. I just knew I was going to screw this one up. And I could hear the voice in my head telling me to get off the stage, you know, just run. And um, to just go back home, right? Fast forward to when the announcer calls my name and again goes on to say how I am about to share my story of survival. And um, I get to the microphone. I'm nervous. I'm scared. I'm terrified. And I'm looking at all these strangers and I'm thinking, what the hell? do you think you're doing and I look down at my diary where I had summed up some talking points and the first thing that comes out of my mouth when I start talking is an apology because I was going to speak English and um, so I say I'm sorry I'm just, I'm just I you know I'm just gonna say this in English and um, hopefully someone's gonna translate after I'm done and so I say this and the voice in my head is screaming, screaming at me and calling me all sorts of colorful words because um, I was already I was already messing it up. But I silence the voice, right? I silence the voice and I start telling my story and tell my story about depression, how I came to be depressed, how I realized I was depressed, how I started feeling suicidal and how I got help. And I finished telling my story to these strangers and I'm thinking to myself, I need to get off this stage. I need to get off this stage fast and I need to lean against the wall or something um, or to sit down before I faint or puke, you know. And as soon as I get off the stage, people come up to me, shaking my hand and hugging me and smiling with encouragement and giving me their cards and saying some really nice things and I'm nodding my head and I'm smiling and I'm hugging them back and saying thank you. And I'm in this trance and it's great. But in my head, all the while this is happening in my head, a voice is screaming, you need to get out of here. You need to get out of here. And um, 
So I realized today why I felt all those things. But despite my fears and my doubts and my anxiety, I put myself out there and I bared my heart to people and I begged them to be kind to each other and to ask for help and to take this mental health thing seriously. It was brave. And the entire time I was doing it, I didn't feel brave in the slightest. This is because the thing that leaks mental health and shame is vulnerability. Vulnerability is at the intersect of shame and mental health. Now, Dr. Brene Brown defines vulnerability as emotional risk, exposure, and uncertainty. And she says this is the fuel to our daily life. If you're an addict for one, um, one of the hardest things to do um, is to admit that you're an addict and to ask for help uh, to get sober. This is because asking for help requires you to feel vulnerable. Even admitting you have a problem requires you to feel vulnerable. And we equate vulnerability with weakness. So we feel shame for wanting help. If you have a mental health problem, um, mental health issues, if you're battling a mental health problem, one of the hardest things to admit to is that you have a problem and you need help. For the same reason an addict struggles with asking for help, so does a mental health survivor. And we feel shame for wanting help. And because we equate vulnerability with weakness. But vulnerability is not weakness. And you cannot fix mental health issues without dealing with shame. I need you to understand something. When you walk up to a friend and you sit down to talk about your struggles, whether it's about a failed relationship or a struggle at work or battling the the feelings of being stuck or lost or broken or unworthy or unloved or you know whatever it is shame is the little voice in the back of your head telling you to shut up shame is what tells you that you're alone and nobody else will understand you this is why it's brave to be vulnerable because if you can find the courage to silence those thoughts and open up and talk about your struggles um, despite all that, what you end up feeling is connection. If you're lucky and you shared your story with the right person at the right time, you will also feel compassion. So courage, connection, and compassion are what Dr. Brené Brown calls the three gifts of imperfection and the key to wholehearted living. So, um, In the very first ever episode of my podcast that is no longer actually online, I talk about my journey with depression and how I came um, to feel suicidal. The next day, literally the next day after that episode aired, people were texting and calling me and saying how they never thought someone else felt the way they did. I've had people text me randomly, paragraphs on end, about what daily struggles they were having. And since then, it's felt like this thing in my life that I've been struggling with, um, I've taken ownership of, that everyone else knows of or and uh, relates to or feels a kinship to. And every time someone shares the story with me, I feel what incredible courage it takes to, to do that because I know what incredible courage it takes to fight 
through the shame and uh, that tells you to shut up and tell your story. So when these people text me, you know, and these people don't have don't have to text me. They don't have to share the story. They don't have to say that they understand that they've been through similar things. They don't have to do anything. They could just shut up and just let me rant on the internet and just let me be. But when people text me and be like, thank you for saying this, or I understood this, or I felt this, they were practicing courage like I was, and they were being vulnerable. And by practicing courage and and being vulnerable, they saved me from my own shame spiral. Because the thing is this, right? Here's what I'm learning. When you reach out and silence the shame gremlins and are met with a me too, you instantly feel connection. The idea that you are seen, heard and valued is what gives you the strength to keep going. So <laughs> the funny thing is, and I've, I've firsthand experienced this, the funny thing is, while we are wired for connection, we actively resist it. When someone cries out and our first instinct is to make them stop, is because we are trying to protect ourselves. When someone cries, they are excruciatingly vulnerable. And they are daring very greatly to make you feel vulnerable as well. And because we are hardwired to resist vulnerability, we say stop crying, toughen up. But if we dare to sit in the uncomfortable silence and hold someone's hand while they cry, or even dare to cry ourselves, we will feel seen and heard and loved and connected in that moment. So in her book, The Gifts of Imperfection, Dr. Brene Brown writes, shame needs three things to grow out of control in our lives. It needs secrecy, silence, and judgment. When something shaming happens and we keep it locked up, it festers and it grows. It consumes us. We need to share our experience. Shame happens between people and it heals between people. If we can find someone who has earned the right to hear our story, we need to tell it. Shame loses power when it is spoken. So when the shame gremlins come out, right? And you start to feel like you want to hide. Instead of hiding, start telling your story. You know, instead of pretending, live authentically. Instead of performing, feel your emotions. This in turn gives you the bravery and the courage to find help and to be better. But when the shame gremlins come and they start telling you to hide, and to not live authentically, and to pretend, and to perform, and to emote, which in turn gives you eating disorders, or depression, or anxiety, or, you know, suicidal thoughts, or aggressions, and whatever. And you listen, and you listen to these voices, right? And you, you keep quiet, and you hide, and you pretend. The only thing that essentially will make it better is to tell your story, and to tell it loud. And this is this can only happen, right? You need to understand, this can only happen if we replace the feelings of shame with empathy. If you feel terrible for not being able to show up to an event, for example, um, an event that you promised you'd be to, uh, you'd be at, 
or to do something for your loved one because you um you had an anxiety attack or PTSD whatever it is like if you were supposed to do something and you failed to do it because you were struggling the last thing you need to do is to feel shame for being able to um for not being able to do those things and you can feel guilt which is different from shame you know because guilt is i did something bad and shame is i am bad right that's how dr brene brown um differentiates it so shame brings depression anxiety addiction whatever and then um you spiral on a shame um storm and you feel bad for being human guilt in turn um you feel those things right you feel bad for being but you know that you're not a bad person so inversely shame tells you you're bad guilt guilt says you did something bad so what you need to do when you're feeling guilt and when you're feeling shame is um you need to treat yourself with compassion you know shame cannot survive in the same room as compassion shame cannot survive in the same room as empathy you cannot practice true empathy and compassion if you're not being vulnerable so to have shame resilience essentially you need three things you need courage you need connection and you need compassion you cannot live by these three things if you're not practicing vulnerability i'm going to repeat that to have shame resilience you need three things you need courage you need connection and you need compassion you cannot live by these three things if you're not practicing vulnerability i hope all this that i said to you gives you the courage you need to start doing just that thank you thank you so much for listening until next time